Shalom and welcome back to another episode of Ezra International's It's All About the Aliyah. You know, for over 25 years now, Ezra International has been helping the poorest of the poor Jewish people make it home to the land of Israel, the land of their biblical destiny. Hi, I'm your host, Gary Christofero, and today's episode has a place very near and dear to my heart. This episode is dedicated to all those who perished in a place called Babiar. On September 29th of 2020, we will mark the 79th anniversary of the horrific events that took place in Kiev, Ukraine in 1941. You might ask, what is Babiar and what does it have to do with the Aliyah? Well, Babiar was an extermination camp and the Nazis committed genocide against the Jewish residents of Kiev, Ukraine and killed tens of thousands of others considered to be the enemies of the Third Reich. The Jews who were killed there were described by eyewitness accounts as the poorest of the poor. That's the exact same uh, description that Ezra International has always used for the people that we help. But the difference was, in 1941, there was nobody there to help. There was nobody to help Jewish people escape their surroundings and get away from the the Nazis' um, plans. And sadly, so many perished. Babiar, you know, rather than use statistics and tell the cold story of what happened there, I'd rather today intertwine my experiences, my understanding of Babiar, what happened with me and what what happened to uh, one of the few, one of the only survivors and her story as I intertwine the two together, how, how it came to my awareness and what happened to her is what I want to share with you today. When I was just a elementary school boy, so long ago, I don't remember the exact grade, we had an assignment to go to the library. We were told to go pick out a book, do a, read it, and do a report about that book. So being the obedient little young man that I was, went to the library, scanned the shelves looking for what I didn't, I didn't know what I was looking for. And I spotted a book, and if my memory serves me correctly, it was a red hardcover, and it had just two words written on it in black, Babiar. Now I had no idea what Babiar meant, what it was, what the story was about, but And I had no idea at the time what compelled me to pull that book off the shelf. But I pulled that book off, I read it, and it was the story of Dina Pronacheva, one of the very, very few survivors of Babiar. Before we get into Dina's story, I'll tell you where the, or give you a little background of what was going on in Kiev, Ukraine at the time. And if you hear me say, say Kiev, and not Kiev. It's because the Soviets used the term Kiev or the name Kiev for the city. The Ukrainians prefer Kiev. This is the note based on eyewitness accounts that was placed on the streets, posted on the streets of Kiev, Ukraine, September 28, 1941. It read like this, all Yids living in the city of Kiev and its vicinity are to report by 8 o'clock on the morning of Monday, September 29, 1941, at the corner of Melnikovsky and Dokturov streets near the cemetery. 
They are, they are to take with them documents, money, valuables, as well as warm clothes, underwear, etc. Any yids not carrying out this instruction and who is found elsewhere will be shot. Any civilian entering flats evacuated by yids and stealing property will be shot. Now, the will be shot part should have been a pretty pretty strong clue. But the fact that they asked them to bring warm clothes and underwear fooled apparently the vast majority of the Jewish people living in Kiev, Ukraine in 1941. They felt that the Germans were going to put them on a train and move them into ghettos or move them at least further from the front of the war. This was at least what they were telling themselves. As we begin with Dina's story, she lived in Kiev with her husband and her children and her parents. Her mother and her father were frail. In fact, her mother had just gone through surgery and they were worried about how they were going to travel, how, how she was going to move her. Now, Dina did not look Ukrainian, did not look Jewish. She looked Ukrainian by her description. And she spoke a number of languages, including Ukrainian and Russian. Her husband's, her husband was Russian, and so therefore her name appeared to be Russian. She had decided before they, the, this day, uh, the night before, she decided that she was going to stay with her husband and her children and to pretend to be uh, Ukrainian. But her parents, because of their condition, she felt it was best that they go ahead and go on. And as I said, they felt that they were going to a ghetto. But that morning, Dina decided to escort her parents to this location that the Germans had described. And as they're walking in line, Dina began to sense something was not right. Fear came upon her and dread that this, this whole situation just did not feel right. Added to that feeling was the fact that a German soldier came and nudged her and said, if you sleep with me, you won't have to go. She looked at him as, he, as if he was crazy. But she knew that the, the situation is just, it's horrible, it's terrible, something is not right. So she decided to go talk to one of the officers. She told her parents she'd be right back. And as they got closer to the encampment, she went and spoke to one of the officers standing guard. And he looked at her papers, he looked at her and he said, get back in line, you filthy Jew. And at that moment, Dina knew that she was going, they weren't going to be moved, that they were going to be executed. She tried desperately to get back to her parents, but by this point, the, the lines had been separated. They had dragged her parents one way, they had kept pushing Dina another way. She got to a place where she could see what was happening, and the Germans were telling the Jewish people to take their clothes off, strip down naked, and then group by group, they were moving beyond a gate where she could not see. At this point, she decided she had to try again. She, she had already torn up her identification papers when the first guard told her to get back in line. She ran to another one and said, there's been a mistake. I'm Ukrainian. I was seeing my friends off and I got past the point of no return and now I can't get out. So this officer believed her and he told her to go sit 
in another location. She sat there and all during the day, other people were doing the same thing. I'm, you know, they kept saying, we're Ukrainians, we don't belong here. And the ones that were believed were put in the queue with Dina. About 50 people added up over the course of the day. The day passes and now it's getting dark. And they felt maybe, just maybe, they'd be able to get home again. About that point, an officer drove up. He, he appeared to be in charge. And he asked the officer standing there, what are these people doing here? And it was a Ukrainian policeman. And he said, these are our people. They don't belong here. We need to send them back. The German officer looked at them and said, no, if they go back and they tell what's going on here, not one Jewish person will show up here tomorrow. Kill them. Now, Dina understood what was being said, and she felt that her fate had been locked in. They formed two groups with this last 50 people. It was, as I said, it was getting late. It was getting dark. The first, 50, the first group went in, and then the second. It was so late, apparently, is the reason why they didn't ask them to take their clothes off. But they, when Dina finally went in through the gates, they went up to the pits, the ravines. They began to walk along the ravines, and she said she could see the bodies in the ravine. It was so far down, but she could see so many dead people already gone before her. And the, the ravine, was, the, the walkway was narrow. They, they leaned close against the wall, not wanting to fall. But when she looked across the ravine, she saw the Germans, and she saw them making coffee on an open fire. And then as her line stopped, a German soldier got up immediately and grabbed a machine gun and began to fire. Now, she didn't have time to think. She didn't have time to, to, to double think or overreact. She saw as the, as the bullets were being sprayed across this line of hers, as it, as it got, drew near, she fell. She jumped into the pit, having not been hit by the machine gun spray. She hit the bodies down below. And other bodies fell upon top, on top of her. She said she could feel the warm blood running all over her. And there was groaning and movement in the pit. She said people were, would move and the pile would settle even more. And more people would push in against her, bleeding and run, their blood running all over her, still warm. And there would be groaning coming from the pit and after the, the first round of machine gun fire, then the Germans started to look down into the pit and shoot anybody that was still moving. Anybody groaning or moving, they would shoot again. She remained motionless. In a little while, Germans came down onto the bodies, walking on the, in the pit on the bodies. And she stayed as still and as motionless as possible. And at one point, a German soldier, soldier came and grabbed her by the hair and pulled her head up and then dropped it again. She again remained motionless. He kicked her in the chest and she did nothing. And then he walked on. In a little while after they had checked the bodies and, and killed, killed anybody that was moving, silence came for a short time and then dirt began to be thrown 
sand and dirt thrown on top of the bodies. Dina, being on top of all these bodies, was hit in the face with the dirt, and she almost choked. She almost began to cough, but she managed to hold it in and clear her airway and continued to breathe while sand and dirt was being thrown on top of her and the others. Fortunately, because of the hour, apparently, they didn't throw a lot. She, didn't, she wasn't buried alive. She almost panicked and felt that she would be. But they stopped suddenly and decided to quit for the day, and they walked off. Darkness came, and here she was, lying amongst all the dead and dying, and she knew that she had to get out. We're going to pause right there for a moment for this short commercial, and I'll be right back. It is hard to imagine in this day and age that many Jewish people in remote parts of the world still lack the basic human necessities you and I take for granted and suffer discrimination due to their Jewish heritage. Even though the wall of communism has fallen, many Jewish people around the world live in conditions that deprive them of freedom and opportunity they so deserve. In the Bible, God prophesied over 300 times that He would restore the Jewish people to their land and specifically called Gentiles to help. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand in an oath to the nations and set my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. The restoration of Israel isn't our idea. It's God's. Since 1995, Ezra International supporters have helped over 77,000 people from around the world. The good news is, a gift of $30 per month for a year can help a Jewish person return to Israel. Say yes. I want to be used by God to assist in the prophetic return of His precious Jewish people to the biblical homeland. Call the number below or visit EzraInternational.org and send your gift of hope today. Before the break, we were talking about Dina, who had, been sh who had dove into this pit with all these bodies. She had not been hit by the machine gun spray. She had not been killed as the Germans continued to, to shoot the bodies of people who were moving. She had survived thus far. She knew she had to get out of this pit. Darkness came, and she crawled out to the edge, and now she had to climb. She made holes in the sides of the pit, the, the dirt mounds, and we managed to get footholds and handholds and managed to get out of the pit. When she got to the top, she heard a voice, and she thought she was caught, but it was the voice of a small boy. His name was Matya, and he had survived. He told her he had climbed out too, and he looked at her like a savior. Dina, at some point in there uh, that night, had decided that if she survived this, she would adopt this poor little boy. But they crawled and they crawled and they crawled, trying to find their way out of the camp. They crawled throughout the night, only to find that in the, as it began to get light, they were still in the camp. So they hid in the bushes all day long. German activity went about its way, and they hid. Scared, stunned, 
In shock, they hid and waited. As darkness came the next day, that night, Dina tried to, to look and see the direction that they, they should go. But it was so difficult in, in keeping her cover. And, and Matya was so scared. He didn't want her to, to look up. Every time she, that, that night when they tried, she tried to find her bearings and look up, he would pull her down as they continued to crawl. And then one point in the night, Matya was ahead of Dina. And all of a sudden, she heard him yell, Lady, don't get up. Stay down. And she heard gunfire. And the Germans killed Matya. Now, fortunately, he had spoken in Ukraine, Ukrainian, and the Germans didn't understand. Dina stayed down and grieved, but Matya was dead. She, again, now in shock and in horror, couldn't move. But she managed at one point to find uh, garbage, a garbage pile and find a way to cover her body, cover her head where she could still breathe, and wait out again another day. As light came, she saw Germans come and light cigarettes and walk on. And I believe probably because of the garbage, the dogs didn't sense her there. But as she laid there in the garbage, she could see tomatoes growing outside the fence. But she knew that if she tried to get something to eat, she would be spotted. So she laid there all day long, now having not eaten for over 24 hours, hunger obviously setting in, fatigue, fear, uh, you know, traumatic stress disorder, I imagine. She was in shock. But she waited and waited for, more, for darkness once again. And she managed to crawl and then get up and get out of the camp. She made her way to a farmhouse. Looking for food, she went into a barn, but unfortunately the dogs saw her. They spotted her and began to bark. The dogs made such a racket that the owner of, the, of this property came, a woman, spotted her and said, you're a Jew, aren't you? She said, wait here. Now Dina was so afraid that the dogs would chase her down if she ran that she waited. And within minutes, the Germans arrived again. They took her away and put her in an office boat, a little shack of an office. She didn't dare sit on the chair, so she sat on the floor. And at some point, the other Germans left, leaving one German to guard her. He appeared to take pity on Dina. He tried to communicate with her. He, he spoke German and didn't realize that Dina understood him and said, come, come over here. Come to the window. And he motioned, like, pretend you're washing the windows and look for a place for your escape. Dina was so scared and looked out the window and knew that she'd never be able to make it across the compound and get out in time. And so she pretended she didn't understand him. He said, Dumkoff, lady, you don't understand. He was trying to help her. Sadly, not enough people like him were around. But later in the day, fate would have it, they did not take Dina back to the pit. There were other prisoners, and they loaded them on a truck. They put Dina on a truck and began to head out of town, maybe to do a, to a labor camp or something of that nature. Dina didn't know, but all she knew, she had one more chance 
to get away. The truck was still traveling at a good speed, and Dina jumped from the truck. The Germans apparently didn't notice or didn't care, and Dana lied, lay on the road, the side of the road, uh, injured, bleeding, and yet free. This time, the people that found Dina took pity on her. They helped her up. They helped her get her away from there. And at some point, Dina was able to reunite with her sister-in-law, who was Polish. And they gave her a uh, Gentile name, another name, and she managed to pretend to be a Gentile, non-Jew, for the rest of the war. And she survived. Because she survived, we know this story. We know of the horrific events that happened at Babiar. And she was the only survivor who was able to testify at the German Nazi war criminal, the crimes, uh, the uh, trials for their, their war crimes. So we know her testimony, and she was able to testify against the animals who did this to her. Now, on the 29th and 30th of September, 1941, Dina was one of the very few of the 34,000 people, Jewish people, who were killed those two days, and then 70,000 overall in the, time, in the time period that the Germans were using uh, Babiar as an extermination camp. There were many more. There were also uh, Soviet prisoners. There were Ukrainians and others who were killed, but almost 70,000 Jews were killed and almost 34,000 in those two days that Dina spent trying to escape. You know, this story touched me as a child, but didn't, didn't, I didn't understand the full meaning of why I had read it until much, much later. As an adult and as a, as a, as a born-again Christian, and in 1992, one who understood the fact that as, as uh, believers, we are grafted in to the Jewish root, and our, our root is, uh, is Hebraic. It was then, in 1992, that I was going to uh, a meeting in Washington, D.C., to lobby against the then-president, George Bush Sr., who was holding Israel hostage with loan guarantees, telling them that they could not build homes in Judea and Samaria, what the world calls the West Bank, to house the Soviet Jews who were coming, those Jewish people who were coming out of the former Soviet Union and looking to find homes in Israel. And he was holding the Israeli government hostage because of the loan guarantees that America was offering. And we were going to lobby the, uh, against that decision. And it was then, during that trip, that supernaturally, I believe, God put the desire in my heart to help Jewish people get home to Israel. That was 1992, many, many years after my, my experience of reading Dina's story in elementary school. And then in a few, uh, it, was, it was a number of years later I met Barry Wagner. I think it was in uh, mid-1990s. Barry Wagner is the vice president of Ezra International. And in 
in the in the later in the, in the early 2000s i started having barry come to the church that i pastored and we supported ezra international my wife and i began to give money to ezra international for the, the helping the poorest of the poor jewish people it, i felt it was the least that i could do but then in 2003 barry invited me to go to ukraine with him and i did and in 1993 i i'm mean, excuse me in 2003 I stood on the very ravine, the edge of the ravines that I'm speaking of in Babiar, Kiev, Ukraine. And suddenly I knew why I had pulled the book off the shelf back when I was a young boy. Standing over those ravines, I got the sense that the blood of the Jewish people sadistically slaughtered in those pits was still crying out to me. And I knew that I had to do more. You know, in Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, there's a placard of the words of Imri Bathory, a Hungarian righteous Gentile. And he said this, I know that when I stand before God on Judgment Day, I shall not be asked the question posed to Cain, where were you when your brother's blood was crying out to God? And when I read those words, I immediately adopted them as my own. I knew that my life had to stand for helping the, the poorest, the most vulnerable Jewish people not suffer the same fate that the people of, of Ukraine in 1941 did and all of those who suffered in the Holocaust. I knew that my life had to be about making never again a reality and not just a slogan. I knew that we had to do, we had to, I had to do something and I had to do my part. And in retrospect, I can see God's hand in it all. And this is what I want to share with you. That in you, you today, you can ask God to give you his desires, put them in your heart if he hasn't already. Some of you may already know what I'm saying. Others may be praying for God's will. I want to read to you from Psalm 37, verse 4 and 5, because this psalm, I believe, is often mistaught, misinterpreted. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Many years passed between the time God put the desire in my heart and the time it came to pass. But I beseech you, as this psalm says, trust in him, delight in him, draw near to him, and allow him to put the desire in, the, in your heart that is the purpose of your life. And he will do it. And then he will make it come to pass. I promise you that. His word is true. Even if years pass, follow step by step his guidance, his direction, and he will make it come to pass. That passage it being taught in the prosperity, as the prosperity gospels, people believe that they can have anything they want if they desire it. No, if you desire to do what God wants you to do in your life, he will place those desires in your heart and he will bring them to pass. You can fulfill his purpose on the earth today. That's my. That's my uh, desire for you. And that's why I told this story the way that I did, because 
we cannot allow the things to happen that have happened in the past. Never again has to be a reality. We must help the vulnerable, the poorest of the poor Jewish people, escape their surroundings of poverty and anti-Semitism and hatred and make it home to the land of Israel. Will you help me do that? Please go to our website, ezrainternational.org, and see how you might be able to help. But I, I beseech you, on behalf of them and on behalf of God, find his desires for your heart, find his purpose for your life, and do it. God bless you. I hope to see you again next time.